Hi everyone, welcome to the first episode of History in 20 podcast. I'd just like to thank everybody for uh, liking the Facebook page and sharing my blog post and stuff, it's really appreciated. So just a little about the podcast before we start, I thought I'd make it as a way to share my interest in history with everyone and the main aim of it is so that people can pick and choose what you want to listen to and I'm aiming to have most episodes done and dusted within about 20 minutes or so. Hopefully it'll be nice and informal and easy to listen to if you're on a commute to work or whatever you fancy doing. And as each episode is going to be roughly about 20 minutes, can't promise I'll include every minor detail, but hopefully it'll be the basis for a decent overview or introduction to a topic that you may be new or were interested in knowing something about. Um, I'll also run a blog alongside this podcast in case you prefer to read about the topic rather than listen to it. And you can find that blog at historyin20.blogspot.com. I've also set up an email account at historyin20 at gmail.com where you can email me any suggestions or anything you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast in future. And I've also got a Facebook page which you can find at www.facebook.com forward slash historyin20. Anyway, let's get on with the actual episode. So it's going to be a four-part mini-series on the Plantagenets and this is going to be part one. And each episode will cover two monarchs in chronological order. But before we start this particular episode, we might as well discuss who the Plantagenets actually were. So there were a royal house in England that came after the Normans and before the houses of York and Lancaster. And the Plantagenet dynasty, which is sometimes called the Angevin dynasty, derived from Geoffrey of Anjou, also known as Geoffrey Plantagenet, hence the name. They ruled from Henry II's accession to the throne in 1154 to Richard II's death in 1399. And they're one of the longest lasting dynasties in British history and at the height were the powerhouse of Europe. So on that note, let's make a start and we'll begin today with Henry II. So who was he? Well, he was born on the 5th of March 1133 in Le Mans in Maine in the Kingdom of France. And his claim to the throne came because he succeeded King Stephen. He was the son of Matilda, who was Stephen's wife, when she was married to Geoffrey of Anjou. And Matilda was Henry I's daughter. So Henry II was the grandson of Henry I. That was his claim to the throne. And, well, what do we know about him? Well, Simon Jenkins pretty much sums him up in one sentence. He says he had a raging temper and a taste for revenge, yet he could also be calm and conciliatory, wise and dignified. And, like I said, that just about sums him up, as we'll see. Um, he married Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152, which was a fantastic alliance, and she was a fantastic woman in her own right. She was a key part of British history for the good part of 50 years. Uh, he became king on 19th December 1154 on his coronation. And he was 21 years old when he ascended the throne, but he'd been involved in political affairs concerning England since he was 14. So he was pretty well versed in his political knowledge by this point. And David Starkey argues that the famous Plantagenet rage started with Henry II. He was even known to chew carpets when he was infuriated. So, beginning of his reign, what does he have to do? Well, the first thing he has to do is restore what had been lost under King Stephen. And actually, to be fair to him, Henry had achieved most of this in, within four years. So in 1157, at the Treaty of Chester, he managed to force King Malcolm IV of Scotland, who was his junior, he was only 16 years old, to restore Cumberland, Westmoreland, Carlisle and Northumbria back to the English crown. So three years into his reign, we've already had four counties restored back to England, so looking pretty good. But what else do we know about Henry? Well, one of the first things everyone thinks of, and rightly so, is Thomas Becket. Now, initially, they'd been friends since childhood. <clears throat> um, his relationship with Becket was pretty fruitful. 
Um, he became a royal diplomat, and in 1158, Henry sent Becket on a mission to Paris with a 200-strong entourage, and it arrived in a much more lavish fashion than he did, which shows a degree of respect and trust that he bestowed upon Becket. Uh, fast forward to 1162, Henry awarded Becket the Archbishopric of Canterbury, but Becket initially refused, and his argument was pretty solid because he argued that one man could not be loyal to both the church and the king. And in the 12th century, the church was the most powerful unit in Northern Europe. But in probably his biggest diplomatic mistake of his reign, or certainly one of them, Henry overruled him and forced the role upon Becket, essentially. Now, Becket took his role seriously, as you'd expect the Archbishop of Canterbury to do, but he was still reluctant to take it. And because he was reluctant, he made a point of ensuring that he opposed whatever Henry did. Uh, and Henry had given him this job out of friendship, so Henry began to feel like a man betrayed. So in January 1164, Henry summoned a council to Clarendon and presented the bishops with what's called the Constitutions of Clarendon, which was a clear state of Henry's customary rights over the church, and he required a promise from the bishops to observe them. Most of them agreed, but Becket argued about it for two days before eventually conceding. And uh, Henry and Becket's relationship just collapsed. Becket had allegedly held up a crucifix in front of Henry's face, reminding him where his personal loyalties laid, and Henry was furious. So Becket fled to France. This was in 1164. Now, Henry sought to destroy him, but obviously Becket had fled to France and he appealed to the Pope. So Henry, probably pretty wisely, concentrated his matters on England and English problems for the next five years, and he managed to conquer Brittany and get another part of France under what was to be the Plantagenet Empire and he overhauled the English judicial system which we'll see in John's reign a couple of monarchs down the line. So come 1169 the question of the coronation to the heir of the throne came about and this was traditionally discussed between the king, the pope and the archbishop of Canterbury. Becket's not present, he's excluded from the discussions. Henry agrees that the young king Henry, who's his eldest surviving son, was going to become king. Becket heard about this, returned to England in 1170 to punish those who'd taken part in the young king's coronation without his approval, which led to Henry II's most famous line that he's often renowned for, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Now, these were the alleged words that he uttered, but it's probably a loose translation of something along the lines of, What miserable drones and traitors I've nurtured within my household that they let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric. So as we saw earlier, Henry was prone to these outbursts in his temper, and, I mean, people had probably seen him have these outbursts before, but four knights took this quite literally, and on the 29th of December 1170, they found Thomas Becket praying at the church altar in Canterbury Cathedral, and they murdered him, and they left him in a pool of his own blood at the church altar. Now, word about this went out. Far too many people had heard Henry's alleged words for him to turn back on. They'd just seen, an, not just an archbishop, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most religious man in England, probably the most religious man in Christendom behind the king and the pope, had just been killed in a house of God by knights with weapons. And it was actually seen at the time by some contemporaries as worse than Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Now, this was known as the Crisis of 1170, dominated the remaining 18 years of Henry's reign and his position collapsed. He fled to Ireland by October 1171. He stayed there for the rest of the year. Queen Eleanor, his queen, she moved to the Angevin capital of Poitiers 
and she tried to undermine Henry similarly to Beckett in any way she could. But so Eleanor did this by taking their son Richard and making him pay homage to Philip Augustus of France. Philip Augustus was Prince Philip of France because his dad Louis the Seventh was the king, and this worked out in Richard's favour in years to come. Uh, but anyway, by 1174. Henry decided that he'd had enough of this being guilty for Beckett's death and it was a fantastic propaganda move for the time and for the English and he set out to Canterbury to pay his penance and a contemporary chronicler, Ralph de Deceto, Deceto apologies about the pronunciation there uh, stated that Henry subjected his flesh to harsh discipline from cuts with rods receiving three or even five strokes from each of the monks in turn so Henry had just been whipped by these monks to show that he was, to acknowledge that he'd paid his respects to Beckett and acknowledged uh, his wrongdoing in the crisis. And surprisingly, and probably likely to this, uh, Henry's Holden's empire had not actually been affected by Beckett's murder. The early 1170s were actually the height of his power on the continent. So it was at this point that Henry decided his dominion should be partitioned between his three eldest sons. Again, this was a good move from Henry because... He's got the height of his empire, I'll dish him out now, sorted, or so it was meant to be. So the young King Henry, obviously because he was going to be the king, he was to inherit his father's dominions, which were Anjou, Normandy and England. Richard, she'd been taken by his mother, so he was to have his mother's, which was Aquitaine. Geoffrey, his third son, was to have the new acquisition, Brittany, which Henry had acquired in 1169. And it was only by 1185 that his youngest son, John, had Henry's other major acquisition, which was Ireland. Now, we'll speak a bit more about that in the John episode, which will be in next episode, hopefully next week. But anyway, his uh, sons weren't happy, four of them fighting over these dominions, and from 1173 onwards, Henry was plagued by these rebellious sons, constant arguments and quarrels between his sons over the land that he'd given them. Now, matters really should have been simplified in 1183 when the young King Henry died, so that was one out of the way, right, we'll divide those other three up equally. Nope, didn't happen. And Geoffrey died in 1186, right, we've got two of them, can divide it in two. Again, didn't happen. And this kind of is down to Henry as well. It's not his sons just arguing, because Henry had clear favouritism of John over Richard. Largely because Richard, had been, Richard was Eleanor's favourite, John was Henry's favourite. Henry wanted to give John more, not fair, and Richard's going to be the monarch. So again, these arguments continued. And as I discussed earlier, Richard had paid homage to Philip Augustus. By 1179, Louis VII had died. Prince Philip became King Philip II of France. Uh, they formed this friendship that they had for a long time. 1187, they formed an alliance to go on the Crusades. This alliance ganged up against Henry as well, because he wasn't happy with the French king ganging up against him. And eventually... Henry died a pretty miserable man in the end at Shinon Castle on the 6th of July 1189 after a 33 and a half year reign. So what can we say about Henry? His legacy, as David Starkey pretty rightly says, Henry had remade the monarchy. Thanks to his restless energy, commanding personality and indomitable will, Henry II had made himself the greatest king in Christendom, and I think he had. And he pretty much had made, been one of England's most successful kings. He was able in his prime to enforce his authority on barons, bishops and even other princes. But surprisingly as well, Dan Jones has a good point. He sees both ends of this argument. And initially he says Henry's astonishingly busy life ended in misery. He'd been betrayed by his wife, all of his sons and seen his birth plans reduced to smouldering rubble. 
But, as Jones rightly points out, which I'm very inclined to agree with, until his last years, Henry had mastered every king, duke and count who tested him. He was perhaps the most famous man in Christendom and his fame would burn across the ages to follow because Henry II had begun a dynasty that would be shaped by his legacy for more than two centuries. And indeed he had. And he's one of the, not just one of the greatest Plantagenet kings, but probably one of the greatest kings that English history remembers. And his throne passes on to his eldest surviving son, who was actually his third oldest son, which who was Richard, and he became Richard I of England. So a bit of general information about Richard. He was born on the 8th of September 1157 in Beaumont Palace in Oxford in England. And he succeeded Henry II as his eldest surviving son. He reigned from the 3rd of September 1189 to the 6th of April 1199. So just under 10 years, wasn't a very long reign, but he achieved quite a lot. And he died, he was just 41 when he died in Aquitaine in France, which was part of his territory. So about Richard, uh, even before he comes on to his reign, David Starkey argues that he'd always been uh, destined to crusade. He was always interested in this, and especially from his uh, homage and his uh, acquaintance with Philip II of France. So as we saw in 1172, Richard was made Duke of Aquitaine by his father, and he spent most of his life on the continent. He's largely, I think, as to... To contemporaries, he's largely probably seen as a European king. Spends most of his life in France, especially when Eleanor takes him to France as well. But, like his father, he was aware that just because he was king of England, it didn't mean that he only ruled England. He ruled a lot more than England, part of this Plantagenet empire that Henry kept acquiring territories from, like Brittany, like Westmoreland, Cumbria, Northumbria, Carlisle. It means he has to keep on top of all of this. And Richard's a good plan for that he's been on the continent he knows the culture and he's aware of this which is a key thing to become a successful plantagenet king as we'll see and again as we said this uh alliance with philip ii comes about and in 1187 especially this comes to prominence when catastrophe hit christendom saladin who's the muslim leader captured jerusalem and richard was the first prince in northern europe to take the cross which meant he pledged himself to recover the holy land and Philip did as well. But it wasn't until July 1190, uh, 10 months after he became king, that Richard actually set off on the crusade, again delayed by family quarrels, which shows how important they actually were. But uh, nevertheless, Richard and Philip set out together on what was to become the third crusade uh, in July 1190. But Richard did not actually set foot on English soil again until March 1194. So, on his journey across the continent, Richard had, in fact, made alliances, as we've seen. One of the key ones was he got married in Cyprus to Berengaria of Navarre. She was the firstborn daughter of King Sancho IV of Navarre. And they got married on the 12th of May, 1191, in the chapel of St. George in Limassol in Cyprus. So, he made these alliances across the continent, but naturally, being hot-headed like his father was, he also made a lot of enemies. One of them was Leopold, Duke Leopold V of Austria, and Richard had insulted him and humiliated him in the division of the spoils after the fall of Acre in 1191. Now, Richard had attempted to disguise himself as a Templar, part of the Knights Templar, the secret order, uh, and he still fell into Leopold's hands when he was shipwrecked in the Adriatic Sea several weeks after leaving Acre, and he got imprisoned, 
Uh, it was only for a few weeks, but nevertheless, he's been imprisoned by someone he's made an enemy with. And then he was, unfortunately uh, for him, unable to recapture Jerusalem. But just because he was unable to recapture Jerusalem did mean that really he's not lost out completely. He'd actually achieved a lot more than other warring English kings of the time. He'd gone across the continent, he'd survived, which was a main thing, rife with disease and warfare all over Europe. And so you can argue that he'd actually achieved much more than his other warring kings of the time, William I, Edward III, Henry V. Uh, nevertheless, he signed the Treaty of Jaffa on Wednesday the 2nd of September 1192, and this pretty much enabled the Crusader states to survive for another 100 years. It was a three-year truce, and it meant that although Saladin kept Jerusalem, it, it agreed to allow a limited number of Christian pilgrims access to the Holy Sepulchre. So the Christians kept everything they held between Tyre and Jaffa, but the true cross remained in Saladin's hands. Because it remained in Saladin's hands, it meant that warfare could essentially go on, and it did, and we'll probably see that if I do an episode on the Crusades, which I probably will do, but I definitely will if anyone's interested in it. So, skip back to Richard. He was on his way back from the Holy Land. He was captured by Henry IV, another enemy he'd made across the continent. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, and Henry IV captured him. He spent 18 months at Trefold's Castle, which is now in modern-day Germany. It was in the Holy Roman Empire in the 12th century. Uh, his release sum was 100,000 marks. That was equivalent of two-thirds of the king's ransom. And to put it into perspective, that was about the price of one crusade. But Richard had been clever about this, as I said earlier, knew that ruling England was much more than just England, it was across the continent. But before he left, he'd set up a man, a friend of his, called Hubert Walter, and he made him the Archbishop of Canterbury. And while he was gone, Hubert Walter actually raised enough money uh, to pay off this ransom. He ran England successfully, quashed attempted rebellions from his younger brother John, and his supporters who attempted to overthrow Richard's reign while he was away on the Third Crusade. Um, and this was really well thought out and well planned, which is why I think he makes a good king as well, not just for his warfare. Um, but again, things didn't go as smoothly on the continent. Obviously he was imprisoned, but Philip had fallen out with him by this point. He tried to take over Normandy, which he didn't do, and he came close to capturing Rouen, which actually was something the French failed to do in completion until the Hundred Years' War in the 14th and 15th century. Um, so anyway, Richard's released from prison in February 1194, and he visited England from March until May, so he was there for another two months. And this is when his brother John begged for his forgiveness over his attempted rebellions. And Richard did eventually forgive him, and he cited that John was just a boy. John was actually 27 years old. Uh, so... Yeah, Richard returned to the continent in June 1194, but rather than attempt to crusade again, another wise move from Richard, I think. He wisely devoted the next five years of his reign to recapturing the lost territory while he'd been both crusading and imprisoned. And surprisingly, his reign was actually a time of relative peace for Scotland, which is definitely something a lot of his later successors, namely Edward I, II and III, failed to achieve for the most part. But we'll get on to that when we move on to them few episodes time but uh, unfortunately for Richard there's a lot of gaps in his itinerary from 1194 to 99 because obviously in these podcasts I'm trying to focus on their English rule Richard being a crusading king that's quite hard to do uh, from these years so there is a bit of a fast forward of about five years I'm afraid um, 
But he did, what we do know is that he spent the majority of his time in Normandy, uh, in France. And actually, in come spring 1199, there was a siege on a Chalou Chabrol, which is near Limoges in modern-day France, sort of central, north, central France. Um, and at this siege, Richard was hit by a crossbow and he was apparently defending himself with a frying pan, of all instruments. His great crusader king held up a frying pan to defend himself. And we don't know whether it was down to his arrogance of knowing he was a good fighter, because, well, clearly he was, or his slow reactions due to his age, we'll not know, but... Anyway, he got hit by a crossbow, he tried to remove the bolt himself, the shaft came out, but the metal stayed wedged in his shoulder, and after weeks of being in pain, he died of gangrene, after slow and painful illness, on the 6th of April, 1199. Now, Richard had no legitimate children with his wife, he was away crusading most of the time, he did have a bastard son, Philip of Cognac, but obviously he couldn't become king because he was a bastard. Uh, so the crown naturally passed on to his younger brother, who became the infamous King John. We'll see about him next episode. But for his legacy, what can we say about Richard's reign? Well, first of all, the fact that Richard's more often remembered by his epithet, which is Richard the Lionheart, rather than his regnal number, Richard I, says a lot. He's mostly remembered as a crusader king. His statue is still outside the Houses of Parliament today. He's using a lot of this Arthurian imagery as a king. Uh, remembered as a warrior, as a fighter, as a symbol of England for a lot of people. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's good to see that we still remember these medieval kings today. And the fact today, I think he'd be remembered as more of a European king, spending only six months of his 10-year reign in England. But the fact he's remembered with such fondness in England shows that just because he didn't recapture Jerusalem doesn't mean he was a bad king and doesn't mean he was a bad warrior at all. And what have contemporaries said of him? Well, John of Joinville, he was writing in the 1250s, he said that Muslim mothers would actually tell their unruly children, hush, or I'll send King Richard of England to you. Again, showing that his legacy survived well past his death. And another contemporary, well, not contemporary chronicler, but an early 14th century chronicler, he was an English Benedictine monk, Ranulf Higdon. He cited Richard as, <coughs> excuse me, as the quintessential English hero, as precious in the memory of the English people as Alexander had been to the Greeks, Octavian had been to the Romans, and Charlemagne had been to the French, which shows again the calibre of kings that he's around, Richard's around. Um, and what the historians say, well, Dan Jones sums it up and says that Richard left the Holy Land as a living legend, hated by some, revered by others, and feared by all, which is pretty spot on, to be honest. While David Starkey says that he was popular with his subjects and admired by contemporaries as the very model of a good king. So again, to follow Henry II wasn't easy, very strong king, and Richard did it as if it was natural. Obviously he wasn't meant to be king, It was he was the third son, so he wasn't expected to be king. But great job he did, I think, fantastic king of England, and certainly remembered as one of the best of the time. Um, definitely better than his successor John in my view but others might have different opinions about that but we'll see about that next time so uh, thanks very much for listening anyway and uh, hopefully you'll tune into the next episode which is going to be part two of the Plantagenets mini series where we'll be covering King John and Henry III thanks for listening see you next time bye <laughs>